Welcome to the Diving Pod. I'm Dr. Megan Nyer from Nyer Performance Strategies, LLC. And I'm Heath Calhoun. And I'm Aaron Rooney. This podcast is brought to you by Sideline Scout. It's the best, best video replay system in the business with their Poolside Live. So get over to sidelinescout.com, check out Poolside Live, get yourself hooked up with a package. Uh, all the controls are super easy, video clarity, pause, rewind, all the fun stuff. Get over to sidelinescout.com, get yourself hooked up. Awesome. So we're going to get started here with kind of our go-to first question, but you've had quite a uh, interesting journey through the sport of diving and even after your career as an athlete. Can you please take us through your journey as a diver and then even maybe explain your role as an international team leader and what that is and why you've enjoyed that so much in your career now? Okay, so my diving journey began when I was 12. I was a gymnast, like many divers. I was a gymnast for about six years before uh, I went to diving. And um, I came from a very small town in Kentucky, Ashland, Kentucky. And we had a fabulous YMCA with a one meter and a three meter. Um, um, but it's a small town and not a lot of uh, coaching available. And uh, I got with a professional coach, Joe Suriano, who coached at the Naval Academy for many, many years down in Nashville. At the time, he was in Nashville, Tennessee. And so we'd spend a lot of time down there with him. Long story short, uh, met Ron O'Brien at um, diving camp um, that when he used to be the coach at Ohio State University. And um, he would have diving camp down in Decatur, Alabama. And so met him there one summer and uh, he was making the decision to move to Mission Viejo, California. Felt like I had a lot of capability and, and asked me and then subsequently obviously asked my parents. I was 16 years old or I was 15 at the time if I would be willing to move to California to follow my dreams of uh, being an Olympian. And so that dream was born when I was a gymnast and um, was uh, curtailed momentarily when my gymnastics coach was no longer able to coach the team. And uh, then I converted into diving. And so then my dreams evolved uh, into going to the Olympics and diving and Ron O'Brien seemed to be the man who would be a logical choice to get me there. So I moved from small town, Ashland, Kentucky, to uh, big Southern California and trained at Mission Viejo and finished my last two years at Mission Viejo High School. And then um, my last two years of high school at Mission Viejo High School. And then I went to University of Florida and dived there and um, and then continue to do club, my club diving with Ron, who was at Mission Viejo um, until 85. And then he went to Mission Bay, Florida. So that was in the South Florida area with a new pool that was there. So um, that's kind of long story short. If you have any specific questions, I was a 1980 Olympian. That was the year we didn't go to the Olympics. Um, the Olympics were boycotted because Russia had invaded Afghanistan and they were meant to be, they were slated for Moscow, uh, Russia that year. And so um, in a political move um, in, in, out of the guise of safety, um, they decided not to send a team to the Olympics. And then, what, what was your discipline for, for, were you 10 meter, three meter synchro? 
10 meter and three meter. So I made the, the, made the team on both boards. Synchro wasn't a thing during my career. Synchro didn't come in internationally. Uh, You know, we did synchro and shows, but um, we, there was no competitive synchro until late, I guess, mid to late nineties at the world level. And, and 2000 was the first time it was competed then. And my career was over in, in 1988. So, so just to follow up a few follow-ups from your diving career. So one um, would be what, what was it like diving with Ron O'Brien at that point in time? Well, it wasn't just Ron O'Brien. It was also, I was training with Greg Loganis. So uh, you ask anybody, I guess the current analogy would be diving, you know, or playing basketball in the same era as LeBron James. I used to say Michael Jordan, but you know, he's kind of a thing of the past as well. But, um, but it it just, I was extremely fortunate. I mean, it was also Jenny Chandler, who was a 1976 Olympic gold medalist. Um, So uh, when we moved to Southern California, um, it was, we, every day was, uh, and their squad meet was like a national championship. And so we had phenomenal athletes. And so I give that a tremendous amount of credit. And then when you get to, to watch literally the evolution of the best diver in the history of the sport. And, um, I was just extremely, extremely fortunate. I mean, Greg was a, a major reason I ever got my tail end off of a 10 meter. I was not super happy about heights and, you know, Ron really wanted me to dive platform because at that time we didn't really specialize the way that people tend to specialize now. Um, so, uh, you know, because again, since there wasn't synchro, the second event was the other board, right? And one meter still isn't in the Olympics and, and at that time wasn't in the world championships either. And um, so people tended not to specialize and um, so I was afraid of heights, so not super great for a diver, particularly when you're trying to go off platform. And um, so, you know, Greg coached me off my first front one and a half <laughs> after I was like, you know, arms around the poles, sitting on the platform, crying, thinking I was going to die. Um, and so I was just really fortunate to to just be in that era. I mean, to watch his level of expertise on a daily basis and to also watch him learn new dives because during that like late seventies, early eighties, we were going from back two and a halves to back three and a halves and gator three and a halves and watching him go from switching those dives out and learning inward three and a half, back three and a half, you know, because Greg wasn't one of those just kind of go like wing it off the platform or mm-hmm. off the springboard. He was thoughtful and it wasn't so much that he was, he, I don't, I wouldn't have called him super scared like me. I was a chicken, but um <laughs> But he was just, you know, he wasn't a like, hey, let's just see how this works out. Um, he was very thoughtful and took his time. So it was really fun watching his evolution. That, that's awesome. Um, something that you had mentioned that I'm really curious about is what was the transition like deciding to move from small town Kentucky to big city L.A.? We, talk, we don't see that a ton right now but it does happen still in America. And what was that like making that decision and how was that transition for you? 
Well, I was a pretty driven kid and um, <clears throat> there are some really beautiful and lovely and wonderful things about growing up in a small town, um, but opportunity uh, isn't one of them uh, for certain things and for diving. It, it, I mean, I was very fortunate. I had a fabulous YMCA that had a one meter and a three meter, right? I mean, that was... Um, and there was a, a local person there who was coaching his son. And so he was not a professional diving coach, but he was coaching his son. And so invited me to come in and dive with them. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm the youngest of five children and, um, and, uh, we were all, we're all athletes and, um, and I, I was very driven. I was very, committed to the idea that I wanted to achieve my dreams and that wasn't going to happen in Ashland, Kentucky. And, um, so I was very fortunate that I had parents who could have one afford to send me to Southern California, uh, mission Viejo. And, um, and I, I walked off a plane to NLA, um, after, meeting people I was going to live with for the first time. They had two sons that had dived and, um, they got, I got connected with them through Sammy Lee, um, Dr. Sammy Lee. And, uh, cause their sons had dived with Dr. Sammy Lee. And so I walked off a plane, never having met these people, because of course, in that day and age, we don't have cell phones and face FaceTime and, and uh, Zoom or any of that kind of thing. And uh, so we had had conversations, of course, but I walked off a plane in LA, they collected me and my bags and we drove down to Mission Viejo and <laughs> that was that. And um, they were the most fabulous. I, I couldn't have been more blessed um, if they had been handpicked and um, by uh, someone bigger than me. And, um, and they were just, phenomenal. And I was very fortunate, like they were supportive and, but they would come watch diving and they hosted a couple of divers. One of them was Doug Schaefer. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, so they would come and cheer us on and, and Ruthie and Hartzell both just passed away in 2020, um, or 2020. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, but you know, to the end of day, she couldn't tell you the difference between a front dive and a back dive. And, um, so they were not, even with their own kids. I mean, even with their own kids, they were not the parents who, uh, got into all that. They were like, yay, good job. Okay. You know? And, um, so it was, I was, I think that that's, um, that, that was, absolutely fundamentally critical to my going out there when I, I was literally three days and after I turned 16 and, um, and that kind of support and stability and, um, and they, I, so that was a huge part, I think of my ability to transition and just get to work. I was able to dive and then Mission Viejo High School was down the street from where they lived. And so it was a great school. I was dissecting cadavers as a junior in high school. You know, I was, thought I was going to be a physician. My dad was a doctor. So I was dissecting cadavers and in, in, when I was a junior in high school. And my dad was like, oh, my God, I didn't see a cadaver until I was in medical school. And it was so I got a great education. 
So I was very fortunate. That, that's incredible. And then my last question before we get to the international team leader portion of this is, um, so as I was doing kind of some research, I realized, I think you have a pretty unique accomplishment in college diving where you won eight out of eight springboard national championships. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that has ever happened on the men or women's side before or since. Is that correct? And then my second follow-up to that would be, as you continue to have that success at the national stage for college, did you ever feel additional pressure or how did you approach going into those meets knowing from pretty much your freshman year on, you were the person to beat? Well, um, there's probably a, a, a lot of ways to answer that question. Um, I came in so after I made the team in 1980, that was, um, that summer I had graduated high school in June and three weeks later or two weeks later was at Olympic trials. And, um, and so, um, I, I took a year. I, since we, since I made the Olympic team and we didn't go to the Olympics, there was all this other stuff that they had the Olympic team do. We went to Japan, um, flew back to the States, had nationals, or, or we went to, yeah. And then we flew back to China and spent two and a half weeks in China because the Chinese had boycotted the Olympics as well. And um, so during that summer, that summer didn't end until mid-September um, because because we had to come back and dive nationals, which was, which was interesting. But, um, <laughs> but um but anyhow, flew back to China, spent two and a half weeks in China, mostly touring around. We did um, uh, shows with the Chinese divers. We did exhibitions because that relationship was really just forming. Uh, and the like in 79 was our first dual meet with the Chinese. They came over the States. 1980, we had another one. We went over there and did exhibitions with the Chinese athletes. So, um, so I took, I ended up taking off that year of school because long story short, my dad passed away that year. He got sick and passed away. And so I spent time back in Kentucky <clears throat> and, uh, so I didn't go to college until the fall of 81. And, um, so I, I, I went to university of Florida and we had, um, the best swimmer in the world, Tracy Calkins. Um, and, I wasn't yet the best diver in the world because I won that in the summer of my freshman year. Um, but I was really motivated to go to university of Florida because I wanted to, um, be a part of a potential national championship team. I think club diving and college diving have a very different vibe. And it was very important to me to be a part of a team where I could contribute to a collective outcome. And I think that's one of the things that's very unique about diving in college. If you're fortunate enough to have, you know, somewhat of a balanced program between swimming and diving. And so I was very intentional about that. And I really wanted to do that. And we did in fact do that. And so um, I do think that there's a different kind of pressure in college diving um, for that very reason. I wanted that, but it also uh, changes the, the kind of pressure. But on the other hand, uh, <clears throat> as I tell all the divers that I work with and all the athletes that I work with, you do one thing at a time. Right. And so for me, it was just, I got to get up and do this one dive. And then I got to get up and do this next dive and then get up and do the next dive. 
I don't think about outcomes. Um, so pressure is really an internal experience and it's also a frame of mind. And so I, to take the pressure off, you get up there and focus on the things you have control over and you don't have control over what anybody else does in diving. It's not an interactive sport. And, and so, um, you know, I think probably I felt the most pressure my senior year because, you know, I had, I had won six up to that point and it was like, I really want to do this. I really want to clean the table. You know, I really want to really want to do this because at that time, platform wasn't in uh, in college. So platform didn't come in until I think 87. So my last year was 86. Boop, boop. So I didn't have to dive platform <laughs> college. <laughs> you know? nice. I would have been a great five meter diver. Um, <laughs> so, um so I probably could have winged a, you know, pretty good five meter list, but don't make me die platform. But, um, <laughs> but anyhow, um, yeah, so it was, it was, um, it was a different kind of pressure and it was really interesting because, you know, of course the swimmers don't pay attention to you until you're up there and then they go, yay, go, go, go. You know, you, you have to win this. And I'm like, okay, well, so do you, you know, <laughs> I mean, turn about fair play here. You have to swim fast. Um, so, um, but it was a great experience. The university of Florida was a, a really fabulous choice for me. And, um, and I got a great education, obviously had a very successful diving career there. That's not to say it was all peaches and cream because whose college experience is, um, but the outcomes were positive. Awesome. And then just the last part to this question, you had mentioned before we got on here that you really enjoyed being an international team leader. Can you tell us exactly what that is and why you enjoy it so much? Well, they're not doing it as much anymore, but I've been the team leader on multiple international trips, like a couple of three junior worlds and then a world series meet and um, what used to be the USA international, but which is now the USA Grand Prix, um, part of the FINA Grand Prix series. Um, so multiple times for that. Um, it just means you're basically, I mean, team leader is probably, um, you know, a, a, a kind description. It's mostly you do kind of everything. You coordinate all of the training and you make sure the athletes and the coaches have what they need and you coordinate, um, obviously make sure people are at competitions when they need to be. And then of course you have to do the not as fun part of that job, which is make sure people are in at curfew and, um, you know, but just take care of everything that needs to be taken care of on an international trip. And, um, so <clears throat> I really particularly loved being the team leader for junior worlds on multiple occasions. I did it three different times and just, it's fantastic to have the opportunity to, um, for these kids to be on the world stage and watch the developmental process. It's like, we just had NCAAs here in Atlanta, um, in, um, March and men's and women's and to see all these kids I'd been on trips with when they were juniors and they're here at college and some are finishing their careers. And it was just really, it's been a blast to, to watch them develop and follow their careers and be a part of this generation of divers. And so I really, um, rel I really relish that experience and, um, pretty organized, um, pretty big fan of, um, um, wanting to provide 
every opportunity for these kids to to be at their best and if I can contribute to that in any kind of way. So that's what being an international team leader does. It's kind of like we do everything from soup to nuts and, um, you know, coordinate the medical team and help coaches. And so do whatever is necessary to give people the best chance to dive at their best. Very good. So you mentioned, um, excuse me, you mentioned being a part of um, this, this new wave of divers, this new era of divers and you being excited about that. I'm going to segue into this next question. Uh, We were connected through John Fox and John Fox for me, um, I feel, and I could be, I could be reaching a little bit. I feel like is, is my generation's Ron O'Brien and you have uh, dealt with Ron and you were coached by Ron. And now we all know John Fox. I'm curious as to what your relationship is with John and explain to the listeners uh, how you guys got connected. Well, I, I've known John since he was diving at University of Kentucky. Uh, I, I've done some judging, and so I've done um, a fair amount of SEC or ACC or NCAA judging. Um, and so I knew John as a diver, and I'm originally from Kentucky, so I, kind of, I have an affinity for University of Kentucky. Uh, everybody in my family went to University of Kentucky, um, all my siblings other than me, and so big uh, University of Kentucky basketball fan. and. Um, And so I, John and I, um, fast forward, uh, worked together. Um, we co-developed the coach mentor and diver mentor, coach mentor and mentee program and diver, uh, mentor and mentee program, um, that, that was on the learning Academy. Um, you know, hopefully that's all going to get Jen back up. But so John and I worked on that together. It was, a. I helped him with a project um, when for a um, coach development um, course he was doing through the USOPC. And <clears throat> so that's when we got to know each other really well. Um, I, I'm just, you know, he, he hadn't done a whole lot of development of educational programs like that. And with my educational background, um, we were able to work together. And so between my background and, and his excellence, um, now as a coach, um, we put those programs together and I just, I do agree with you. I I think, um, it's really, it was very interesting working with John and, and I go down to Moultrie whenever I can to help, you know, judge or do whatever when there's, regionals or zones or nationals. I mean, there's been that, you know, junior nationals have been down there. And so I go down there anytime I can to try and help him out. And, um, but the way he thinks, um, Ron O'Brien had his PhD and, um, John is an educator and Ron was an educator and John thinks like Ron does. He's very systemic. He's very much a systemic thinker. So he looks at it from all angles and he, he, thinks um, technically about diving. I mean, Ron was a technical master and he was also very good strategically in terms of uh, periodization. I I think he was the first diving coach that really did much in the way of this thing called periodization. And um, so Ron is just a brilliant mind about diving. And I see John having a lot of those same kind of qualities and uh competencies and so i absolutely see john fox as 
as um, the future, certainly one of our greats in the future of the sport. Yeah, we definitely agree. We had the chance to uh, go down there and spend a weekend clinic with him and learn and, you know, see the facility and everything that it has to offer. And it's just, it's incredible. So that was, that was super fun. And I was appreciative of every moment we got to kind of soak up his knowledge. So um, segueing a little bit now, when it comes to international competition, my question here is what's the biggest difference you see compared to our best at the D1 level? Um, feel free to elaborate. I know before we got on, we talked a little bit about that. So, well, um, the NCAA at the D1 level, uh, the NCAA championships are an international meet. And so, uh, you've got divers from all over the world who are going to university in the United States. And, um, whereas philosophically I may have issues with that because I, I would like to see our money go towards, uh, uh, USA divers, but on, but on the other hand, uh, it makes it a super high level competition and, uh, NCAAs on springboard, um, men and women do six dives and, uh, in FINA women just do five optionals, um, five dives. And, um, and I don't, you know, I, I wish that they would up that cause there's really no reason not to, you know, after they got rid of balls. Um, I mean, that's just like, a, it's like a legacy thing and I'm not sure why it's never changed. And, um, and so, uh, so going to NCAAs, you're seeing, uh, the thing I love about it is you're seeing, um, even back in my era and in, in the eighties, um, uh, it was just a, a great fun to, to see all my friends that I would see on international diving trips and we would be together in the States. And, um, so I, I think, um, it, it's really fun to get to know so many international divers because you really just sort of develop your international sponge network. You get to be friends with people all over the world, which is truly what I cherish about uh, diving. Um, I, I just, I have this deep belief that international sport can save the world because nothing else is going to. And, um, and so it's really fun, I think, to have that opportunity to, to um, be collegial, literally, with people from all over the world, but as terms of the quality, it's really no different. I mean, because you see a lot of these people who are diving the NCAAs and they're all then diving, even at the university of Florida, I had lots of teammates, whether they're divers or swimmers who were swimming or diving for other countries. And, um, so they were at the world level in their own countries. And so it's very, very high quality diving for sure. Right. So now we're going to kind of segue kind of into your profession now. Um, okay. when, it, when it comes to divers as people and athletes, what are the areas that you can see coaches currently maybe excelling and areas we're struggling in regards to the mental side of um, athletics with our student athletes? Well, I still think the mental side is uh, underappreciated, undervalued, um, not as much education about it. I mean, that was another thing that we were working on putting into the Learning Academy was more information about sports psychology. Um, you know, uh, I, I just one of the things that Greg Luganis will talk about is that he will say that he was taught how to do um, deep belly breathing and imagery when he was three, four, five years old 
in what, when he was dancing, cause he started in dance. And so I really see some of the basic things that can help athletes not being taught. Um, I've taught people how to diaphragmatically breathe, you know, 8 billion times at this point. And it ought to be just a basic fundamental skill that every single coach has. And they teach it from the moment the kid comes into you know, I'm not so sure about lessons, but maybe so, because, you know, you, you grab them at lessons, you know, I mean, you got, we got to look at our entry places and the reasons why some people don't continue on the sport and in diving, uh, what I say to all the people I work with in diving. And also when I work with gymnastics is you've got to have a, um, manageable relationship with fear. Fear is just part of the landscape. And um, whether it's learning new dives, whether it's afraid of hitting the board, whether, you know, I mean, if you're teaching people technically, they should never hit the board, right? Technically correct. They should never hit the board. But, um, but just diaphragmatic breathing, just so that they can keep their nerves down so that they don't get hijacked by that, um, by that fight or flight response that freezes them up and chases them out of the sport. Um, so I would say that's a real fundamental one. Um, I, I think, um, you know, I really see the technical competency increasing quite a bit. I think, um, <clears throat> I, I think uh, we're recognizing that it's really important to have, um, particularly since we're in the age of synchro and have been for a long time now, but um, to, to have some consistency with how you teach the mechanics so people can pair up. You know, whereas before in my era, it was very individual. And so you would see some, you know, some kind of funky stuff and coaches were pretty individualistic, whereas now we're recognizing the importance of um, um, what I would call technical consistency about, I mean, it's not that things aren't, um, people don't have their own flair, but I think it's particularly important from the ground up that we're teaching people very consistent and solid mechanics and without a whole lot of variation to how you do that. Right. Um, so I think that's one thing that is coming along. I think it needs to come along more in this country. We really need to focus on um, grassroots and, you know, junior level diving coach development, but I see the really the, the best junior um, diving coaches in this country are doing a phenomenal job um, of that technical consistency and, and mechanical accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. Very much agree. Um, and you kind of already touched on maybe one of the things regarding diaphragmatic breathing, but what are some things, some, maybe some entry level things that coaches could do a little bit more of to implement into our practices to improve our athletes mental side of our sport? I think, um, well, again, diaphragmatic breathing, I, I can't begin to tell you how critical that is because um, you got to keep them out of the fear space um, to, to get them to the next thing. Um, um, I would say uh, when they teach imagery, um, I, I think a, a big misconception about teaching imagery is that yeah, a lot of people teach things the way they were taught and, and with imagery, with diving, it's really not great to have people laying down and doing imagery or visualization, um, because you don't want to be that way. You don't want to be horizontal in, in diving. And oftentimes when people lay down, they can't get feel for, for the dive. And so I actually, 
Um, I see a lot more people using modeling, which is really good because it's more what we call kinesthetic imagery or movement imagery. And um, I think that's really good. Um, I don't think it's as everybody thinks. I think a lot of people think that you should be able to see the dive in your mind's eye. And I don't think everybody's um, uh, necessarily that's their best sense. And and so um, I don't think it's totally necessary that they can see a dive in their head, but as long as they can move through it or you, um, it, it, you know, and they, they can be aware in that way, I think that that's really important. And so I think making sure that people teach that particular skill well and don't obligate people to lay down and try to see dives because, you know, you, that's not how you want to end up on the water. Um, that's a bad thing in our sport. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one quick follow-up to that was, um, for our listeners who don't know what diaphragmatic breathing is, can you just maybe explain how that helps them stay out of that fear area? Um, and then they can maybe find some areas around them that can teach them that diaphragmatic breathing. Well, diaphragmatic breathing there, we are in a constant state of oscillation. You know, there's work and there's relaxation, work and re work and rest, if you will. So imagine a teeter totter and teeter totter goes up, you know, work, the body is um, being engaged to work and then uh, rest or relaxation um, levels it back out. So you want to be consistently um operating between, you know, in that cycle. And so when people get real jacked up, when they get uh, super alerted, um, or they're fearful, then that work or that arousal or that, um, uh, th that part of the brain is activated. And so the diaphragmatic breathing helps send out those chemicals in the body that help balance the body out. And <clears throat> so since we're constantly oscillating creatures in that way. Um, I think sometimes what happens, particularly when people get fearful, that breathing tends to get shallow and, um, and uh, nerves tend to get up and you know, like people will have that sense of either like they're throwing up or their heart rate goes really um, out of whack. And, and so the diaphragmatic breathing is really critical to calm the body back down so you can get in that part of the brain that knows it knows what it's doing. And, um, you know, otherwise it, fear hijacks people. And so we want to keep, uh, we, we, we want to keep, um, we want to have appropriate level of challenge, um, and skill with people to, in order for them to be able to navigate, um, and stay out of that fight or flight response. And, and a more, much more complicated concept is, um, lost skill when people lose dives. And that's a, that's a different thing. And it's not necessarily a fear thing. It's kind of like a neurological glitching thing. But if you, we have time, we can, I can talk a little bit about that because it's huh. a player in this sport. I'm, I'm really curious because my brain just kind of had an aha moment when I would dive and when I was nervous or scared, I would totally channel that fear and embrace it and not necessarily hyperventilate, but at the same time, like I would make sure I was up to try a new dive. I would make sure I was hyped up. I was amped up, ready to go. And now hearing this, you know, I, I, I'm sure this is, this is a foolproof method and, and works. I've just never heard it like that where you kind of need to calm yourself down. Is there a, 
adrenaline element that either goes away or what, what part of that? Cause in, well, my, Aaron, in my head, I'm like, I want to be up. Well, I think there's a difference between physical activation and, uh, and psychological activation. And so the distinguish, uh, the way I distinguish that is I talk about the difference between being nervous, excited, like, woohoo, put me in there. I'm ready to go. I'm feeling sharp. Right. Um, so that kind of like, uh, that, um, you're, you have heightened energy, um, and then there's nervous, anxious, which is like, oh crap. And, um, like, uh, you know, maybe I can run for the door and nobody will notice that I'm not here. And, um, so that is how I would distinguish those two things. So everybody has to get into that level of activation that works for them. And you might've been able to handle a really high level of physical activation that didn't then get interpreted into anxiety. But once it's getting interpreted as anxiety, fear, then, you know, there's a difference between nervous, excited, you know, we're competing and I love this and I can't wait. And like, oh my gosh, you know, save my life. Right. And, um, you know, because when people get overactivated or get really anxious, then there is psychological threat the same way as if a bear just walked into the room. So interesting. Well, so would you mind kind of touching base on, you mentioned lost skill syndrome and I've seen that happen a few times in my lessons group. And some of the kids I've been able to slowly rebuild the confidence and go back to the basics and it's worked great. And then some of them, it's like, I think, I don't know if I'm rushing it too much, but it's like, Hey, we're just going to stay on this skill until you're like, I got it. So what do you see and how can we explain that to our listeners and how to work through that? Maybe. Well, I have a great handout. I'm happy to share with people. Um, And, uh, but the difference is lost skill. In other words, you walk down the board and maybe you do your hurdle and all of a sudden your body just won't do the dive that it might've done hundreds of times before. Um, Happened to me on full twisting one and a half at one point. And I was like, I just, it, it, it's like a neurological glitching. It's like, um, it's like, uh, it's like the reason that we use control alt delete, right? Um, because the program just glitches and it's not working right. And so the first thing is you really have to take the stress off. Um, uh, I've worked with lots of coaches with this and, um, it's not, it's not a fear thing. And it is very different. I'm not saying fear isn't a player in there anywhere, but I'm saying the reason they're not doing the dive isn't because of fear. Um, it's just they're somehow their brain and their body got disconnected and they just, the, the, the program isn't work running right. And, um, and so you, you're dead on. The first thing to do is kind of break it all back down, go to the basics. You got to calm the system down. Um, you know, if coaches start yelling at the kid and parents start yelling at the kid and, um, teammates start yelling at the kid, um, then it just doesn't, it doesn't help. Uh, you really have to take the heat out of the situation, um, because people often feel a lot of shame. Like, I, I, you know, how many years was I in a diving career and I couldn't do a full twisting one and a half. I was like, are you kidding me? You know? Um, and it didn't, for me, I was fortunate. It didn't last for very long. I actually 
couldn't get it off during a training session before a meet. And I was like, well, whatever, we'll see how this works out, you know? And I just winged <laughs> it in the meet. And for me, it was not enduring. Late, late in my career, I had some difficulties with inwards and, um, and I could, I, I was like, okay, um, if, if I can get one off, I can probably get two or three off. But if I go past that, forget it. I'm glitching all over again. And, and, and there's so much we don't know about what this is, but it, it is very important to take the heat off, make sure nobody's yelling at anybody, including the diver yelling at themselves and, um, decompress the system and go back to, it's really, it's a rebuilding process. It's like, you gotta, you gotta, you know, put the Legos back together again. And, um, and, you know, for some people, it's very momentary, Mm -hmm. like it might happen in one workout and not come back. For some people, it's a, uh, I was talking to Matt Scoggin, um, who coached Troy Dumay, 16 years of dealing with it with Troy Dumay. Troy Dumay was what, a four-time Olympian, five-time Olympian, um, and 16 years. And one of the things um, Matt Scoggin said to me one time when we were at a, um, together, um, at a meet, uh, we were talking about this because it's just, again, I think it's something coaches don't understand. And, you know, if it helps you any better, we don't understand it super well either, but, um, but he just said, once somebody has it, rarely does it ever completely go away. I mean, there were times that Troy could come in and he could get through a lot of his dives, some of his dives, none of his dives. And he did this for 16 years. And, um, and so, um, it, it never completely went away for Troy all throughout his career. Um, or throughout his Olympic career. And um, so it really takes extraordinary patience. Everybody's got to be patient because the minute you turn up the heat, the glitch just, you know, it's like the gap gets bigger. Mm-hmm. And um, so I've worked with this a ton with divers and um, with gymnasts, you know, again, the people who are susceptible to this particular uh, issue and it's ended careers. Um, it's ended relationships between coaches and athletes. Um, it's super frustrating for everybody involved and, um, but you can, you can work through it. It's a matter of how willing you are. It may be a limitation to that particular divers, um, possibility for what they quote could do. Um, if, if, this particular issue wasn't a problem, but I've known athletes who had it their whole career and it was career limiting for sure. Um, but it just depends on coaches have to be really patient. And if they just don't have the patience and aren't willing to understand, you know, just like my fear was career limiting for me, I ended up quitting platform because I was like, I'm out, you know, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. This is terrorism. This is not my idea of the time. And, um, and so Ron was like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, sure. He wasn't super happy about that, but my fear, uh, cause I would get lost. Um, I didn't have the, you know, I, I, they, people talk about having a cat like sense. Well, I had a dog like sense. I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
you know, threw me off the platform. Uh, God knows what body parts would be, you know, akimbo at the bottom of that, you know. So, um, kinesthetic uh, sense, air sense was not my greatest asset. And um, so I would get lost and, and so the platform was terrifying for me. Other people love it. You know, God bless them. People go off a 27 meter. God bless yeah. them too. You know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I just have to say this because in, in the history of this podcast, which has only been about a year, I think I just learned something way beyond what I could have ever possibly learned. I've, so I've never had an athlete with lost uh, skill syndrome. And, you know, I've had to work through things with them. And of course I divert to what I know and what I've been taught and what I've been shown. And I came from a snowboard background where everybody's hyping you up. Let's go. You can do it. You got this. And then I gravitated towards those type of coaches. So all through my coaching career, you got this, you need a kick in the butt. Here we go. You can do it. And so my adrenaline levels have always been really high. I've always been super motivated and then in turn, that's kind of what I pass on to my athletes too. When we're learning something new, I will totally use my, my upper diaphragm and breathe and, and, and be way elevated so that they're excited. They can see I'm excited. Let's get this done. And what I'm realizing is that I'm incredibly lucky that I haven't had somebody had this lost syndrome skill because I'm doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. And it was <laughs> It was really cool to kind of like recognize that as I'm sitting here because I, I totally am like the biggest cheerleader and you can do it. And, and I've never yelled, but I get really excited. And I feel like that excitement gets the divers to do what they ultimately want to do. And in some cases, it's, it's you need to balance those scales, like you were saying earlier, a little bit better. Um, so I, I just had to say thank you for that. That was that was fun. Well, you're welcome, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it wrong because lost skill syndrome is different than that fear um, before somebody does a dive, yeah, a yeah. new dive. And yeah. sometimes, um, but you can't overhype people to the point where they don't, they can't, they don't feel, they're, they're already hyped enough, you know? So, right. so um, <clears throat> like if you had been super, like if Ron had been a super hyper coach, what he, which he wasn't, is like getting Ron to emote was our biggest challenge. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, getting, uh, you know, but it, it, again, every kids are different. I mean, like they're, you come from snowboarding, which is a very different culture. And, um, and that's not to say there aren't those type T personalities, those big thrill seeking personalities. And those are the ones that are more likely on 10 meter than people like me. I'm not that way. Uh, and, um, so it's really a personality thing and it's about what the kid things. I think it's really important that a coach believes in an athlete and says, Hey, we got this, you know, because pairing up with them, even psychologically, when they're about to wing that dive for the first time, no matter how many times you've uh, had them in the belts, no matter how many lead ups they've done, no matter what, that that's still that psychological and emotional rope that you've got connected, you know, that telepathy between the two of you. And it can be really good. So I would not say that you're doing the wrong thing. I think it really depends on the kid. You know, sure. I, think, I think some kids can handle a higher level of, again, that physical activation, as long as it doesn't flip into that anxiety, or the only way they'll get off is like, you know, come on, you got this, you can go, you can do it. All right, you got it. So I don't think you've been doing it like uniformly wrong. Perfect. Make you feel better. Um, 
Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so next one here is, can you explain what NIR Performance Strategies is and what you provide? Okay, well, I do um, performance and health psychology work at the individual team and organizational level. So I sort of have, you know, two different sides of my world, which is the the sports psychology side where, or performance psychology side, where I'm working with all sorts of performers. I've worked with musicians, I've worked with actors, I've worked with singers, I've worked with, um, but the vast majority of my um, individual work is is with uh with um, athletes. And so I do everything from soup to nuts with um, my athletes, everything from um, performance consulting. Um, so everything about getting them ready for competitions, you know, getting them uh, to optimize training and competitions. And, um, and then organizationally, team and organizationally, um, I do a lot of, um, I do leadership development. I do, uh, in organizations, pre-hiring, testing, um, executive uh, development, um, strategic planning, and uh, a lot of leadership development. Because again, at the end of the day, leaders, whether they're coaches, whether they're CEOs, whether they're middle management, um, leaders uh, direct the energy of the organization, of the people in the organization, whether they're athletes, um, employees, and so I, I, I think about things very systemically. I, I, I really love working with coaches because, um, you know, the, the athletes, the end users and the people who are impacting the athletes on a day-to-day -day basis are the coaches. And so I really like consulting with coaches as much as I like working with individual athletes, because if they can change the way they do things, then that impacts a whole lot more people. Um, and so I really, I, I love working with coaches and I think coaches don't get enough coaching. I lo love that. Um, a follow-up to that was, I would just ask you, is there any literature or books that you would recommend for coaches to read, whether it's about the performance side of things or leadership side of things that are like your go-tos that you think could help coaches have more of that coaching or knowledge? I think one of my favorite ones is, is Jim Lair, L-O-E-H-R. He was one of the original sports psychology people in this country. He wrote um, the book, The Power of Full Engagement. And every single coach, every single leader I work with, I have um, them get that book because it talks about, uh, again, optimal performance is an energy management issue. It's your physical energy, your mental energy, your emotional energy, your spiritual energy. And spiritual energy is, is what you're aligned with, what really matters to you. And so my spiritual energy was aligned with, I wanted to win the Olympics and I wanted to be the best driver I could be. And so I think about that for coaches. And so you talk about directing that energy and that's what uh, optimal performance is really an energy conservation thing. And it's also how people can recover from um, uh, mistakes. Um, the people who recover from mistakes, whether it's like in that moment in a hurdle or after they might've messed up a dive and like before they do the next dive. I mean, I was really great uh, at it's never over till it's over. I won lots of competitions doing a nine dive list. You know, I mean, I blew a dive and there were 10 dives, but I was like, well, that one's over, you know, got the rest of them. And, and so a lot of people are out of a competition after they blow a dive and 
And um, so, um, so the power of full engagement, you know, I, it's the book I wish I had written before he did, but, um, <laughs> but he did a great job. And he talks about that both in the, um, you know, he takes a lot of those principles of optimal performance from athletics and puts it into what he calls corporate athletes. So that's one of them. Um, that's my, um, one of my favorites. And, um, actually, um, uh, um, there's a book by Miha Csikszentmihalyi and don't ask me to spell that. Um, that used to be one of my, uh, um, challenges for myself. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to spend this guy's name by the end of the year, but, um, it's called good business. And the reason that it's really good, because he takes all the principle, he was the primary researcher on the concept of flow, or what we would call the zone. And he takes it, um, uh, those concepts of flow and talks about how you can make that happen in an organizational setting. And, um, and, uh, um, the subtitle of it is uh, um, leadership flow and the making of meaning, something to that effect. Um, but it's called B- good business, and I can I can send you that stuff over email. Um, <clears throat> how to how to spell that? But I know that those aren't probably what you expected from a classic sports psychology. Um, uh, uh, Jim Lair did. Uh, he he still I think has some of the best books. Um, in sports psychology, I haven't written mine yet. You know, it's on that to-do list. Um, um, <laughs> someday. Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, I would say any book by Jim Lear, cause he did like, um, you know, mental toughness training. He, he, he I think he just did a really great job. CK or CH. He did some really great books too. So I wouldn't say there's just one, but I really, every coach I work with or every leader I work with, I have a really powerful engagement. Perfect. Perfect. So, and then the last question before we get into our signature questions is how could a coach athlete or organization contact you about the potential of working with you? You can contact me through my email at M as in Megan, N as in Nancy, E-Y-E-R at D as in David, R as in Robert. So Dr. Megan Nyer, M-E-G-A-N-N-E-Y-E-R.com or my phone number. Can I get my phone number? If you want to, you're more than welcome to. Okay. 404-931-5253. I will respond to texts. Um, um, so those are the two best ways to get in contact with me. Perfect. Cool. So yeah, well, like we said, we're going to get into our signature questions. Uh, on this podcast, we don't treat failure like a bad thing. We treat failure yep. like an opportunity for growth. Yep. Yep. Um, so what is your favorite failure or your best opportunity for growth? Well, I think that that's fabulous that you guys do this because I, I look at failing, um, as a critical component of success and failing and failure are two different things. Failing is you just didn't meet the objective. Failure is that you just quit and quit trying. Right. And that doesn't mean you can never quit, but, or, you know, quit your sport, but I'm just saying, I look at failure and failing as two different things and failing, I think is really critical to understanding. I think, um, probably the most, um, painful and powerful, uh, 
failure opportunity or failing opportunity for me was um, uh, when I didn't make the 1984 Olympic team. I mean, I, I just, I proceeded to take a, about a year off after that. I, I just needed to kind of reset and I had to kind of get back into my soul and figure out why I dived to get, and get reconnected with what mattered to me um, because I had really lost some of my passion. And, um, and, you know, when you feel like you let your family down, your coach down, your country down, um, that's a pretty, um, that's pretty gut-wrenching. And I, it also gave me a really good opportunity to um, figure out who I was outside of the pool. And, um, and so, so diving wasn't um, so central to my identity at that point. And so I took that year and like kind of figured out what are the things in the universe I liked and, and um, just did, and just uh, developed myself more um, fully as, uh, as a person. Um, and so uh, while, um, it was a really painful time, it was also a, a very important time of growth. Cause when I came back to diving, I had a very different perspective on the sport and I had a different perspective on me. And I think that that was really critical those last couple of years that I dived. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's an awesome answer. Um, so the next one here, I always ask whatever, whatever avenue of diving you come from, you know, how can that uh, structure it do to improve. I know you had created that, uh, that mentor mentee program with, uh, with John Fox within USA diving. So my question comes from within USA diving, what can, uh, what can we do as an organization to improve? Um, um, I think, uh, probably one of the most critical things that USA diving has needed to do for a very, very long time. And we'll see if it happens, but to get a junior or high performance director. And so that there is more um, coaching education from the ground up and um, diver education, because I mean, even me, I, I coached some summer league um, quite a long time ago, but I coached some summer league and all, all of a sudden it occurred to me, I didn't know how to teach a front dive, you know, and it was like, I could, coach elite athletes, but I didn't know how to teach kids how to do basic stuff. And, um, so I had to go get, get my resources, you know, Ron fortunately had a book and, and I could talk to Ron and, you know, I talked to other coaches and was like, okay, how do you teach a front dive? You know? Um, so, um, so I just think it's, if we are ever going to really have, um, be back where we're threatening for multiple um, medals or gold medals at an Olympics. We have got to do a better job of developing from the ground up. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Great, great answer. It, it just makes me sad when I hear that you and John, and, and I feel sure a lot of other people worked on like the learning Academy and it's like, we don't have access to that yet. Cause I feel like there's so many coaches that would run through a wall to just take mm -hmm. all that information in. Um, so we talked about this real briefly. What was your favorite drill to do as an athlete that you felt helped you improve the most? I really like doing belts. Uh, again, I go back to the fact that I didn't have the most fantastic kinesthetic sense. And so I had to do stuff in the belts lots and lots and lots of times before, 
Um, and I, and again, don't, didn't have that personality that I wasn't afraid um, of doing things. And so belts for me were super critical. And Ron was just a phenomenal, like Ron and, and also the assistant coaches that worked with Ron. He was fabulous. He was great at um, pulling ropes. And so um, probably saved my life. Wonderful. And actually enabled me to ever do any dives. <laughs> that That's awesome. That's such a great answer. Um, you know, so this next one's pretty broad, but what is the best advice you've given or received? And that could be, it doesn't have to just be for athletics. Yeah. Um, well, I tell you what, I was very fortunate with Ron O'Brien and, and again, he has PhD, he's an educator and, and that's just in his soul. That's how, that's who he is. And, um, so I, 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 um, a few years ago when we had a mission VO team reunion, um, I put together uh, a book asking this very question of like, oh, what wow. was the most important thing that, you know, that you remember that Ron taught you that, uh, that you apply to other parts of your life. And so it was, I, I felt like that was really important because, wow. you know, Ron being an eight time, um, Olympic <laughs> coach and, and, uh, having, has that had his athletes win everything in sight. And, um, he really felt very moved by, uh, that particular thing that I had done because all sport is just an analogy for life. Right. And so one of the things I remember Ron saying to me that I still, I say to myself this, to this day, and I also have handed down to hordes and hordes of people I've ever worked with is make the best decision you can based on the information you have. And, um, and if you make that decision, you know, most decisions are not unchangeable. And that doesn't mean be um, flippant in making decisions. It just means most decisions aren't um, permanent. And so um, you can uh, you can change that decision. So if you get further data and you need to revisit that decision, or if that decision doesn't play out, it, it's okay to revisit it. I mean, so many people look at decisions as if, you know, they're all life and death and the vast majority of them aren't. That's awesome. Love it. Um, and then kind of my last signature question here is, who would you be interested or who do you think would be a good interview for us to reach out to and try to interview? Well, I think, uh, Michelle Mitchell, um, if you haven't interviewed her, I would, um, be happy to hook you up on that. Ron O'Brien for sure. Yep. Yep. Um, I'd be happy to, to help you with that as well. I think those are two people I would for sure, I mean, there's lots of folks in the diving world. Um, I think Mary Ellen Clark, you would enjoy. Talking oh, yeah. Um, Karen LaFace, she's a physician mm -hmm. and she's been a team physician on some trips. We were on one of the junior world trips together. And so that was blast because um, we go way back. So she would be very interesting one to talk to um, Kent Ferguson. Um, well, Greg Loganis, uh, of course, but Kent Ferguson, he, um, you know, he really struggled a lot with panic attacks and kind of how he dealt with that. And, and, um, and so he's, he would be really fun to talk to as well. So there's lots of folks in my era that I think would be interesting for you to talk to. So I can yep. <laughs> awesome. I'm happy awesome. to make connections for you. Uh, we will, we will 100% take you up on that off air. Thank you so much. Um, 
So like we always tell everybody, um, we have our camps and clinics on our link tree on our Instagram, which Aaron will go over here shortly. Um, coaches, if you want your camps or clinics advertised, please just shoot us an email or a message and just give us some information. Uh, we'll probably ask a few questions, but we just want to share your camps and clinics to get the information out there to our the people that are following. And a special thank you to uh, Dr. Nair. We really appreciate this. This one was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here with you. All right. Yeah. So if you're listening, uh, hit us up on Instagram. We are at the diving pod. Our email is the diving pod at gmail.com. T-shirts and hoodies are still for sale at divingpod.itemorder.com. Again, enter the coupon code DivePod at checkout. That gets you free shipping. Um, once again, yes, thank you so much, Dr. Megan Nyer here. Um, it was awesome to make the connection between you and John Fox and Ron O'Brien. And um, you know, we're, we're segueing all these eras and we're, we're starting to see the bigger picture in the sport of diving. So we appreciate you coming on. All right. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll see you next time.